But let's pray together before we get into Isaiah chapter 9, today's sermon passage. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We have folks watching in their homes right now, and here I am at our church, and people may watch in their homes later that, that don't watch live, but catch up later. Wherever we are, we submit ourselves to you now. We're grateful that Richard came through his surgery well, and we ask for your healing and protection of those that we know who have COVID-19 and those who are sick in every way. And would you use any and all suffering and unrest that's going on right now to draw people to yourself through Jesus and glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And now as we submit ourselves to your word, would you please speak to us plainly and clearly and in a transformative way so that we do not walk away from this passage the same way we walked into it. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you for praying with me. Isaiah chapter 9 is the passage for today, verses 1 through 7. We talked about verses 1 and 2 a little bit last week, and we're going to talk about the whole passage together today. I'm just going to read it, and I have two truths to proclaim to you from it. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, made, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there's our passage this morning. It is a glorious passage full of things that we could go into and talk at great length about. Many things that beg for explanation. There's probably things in there that you don't understand. But for this morning, I just want to point out two things that are true from this passage. And the first one is, Jesus is a governmental leader. King Jesus is a governmental leader. Usually, if we read Isaiah 9 at all, it's for verse 6 and just the first two lines, and we read it at Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But I want to look beyond that and just note the vocabulary that the Holy Spirit inspired to be used of Jesus. 
Isaiah was prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, but he was definitely talking about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And listen to the way he talks about him. In verse 3, he says, you have multiplied the nation. So early in the passage, he's already talking in national terms. In verse 6, he says, government shall be upon his shoulders. So right after what we usually think about at Christmas time, for to us a son is born, to us a son is given, immediately after that, what's special about this child, this son? The government shall be upon his shoulder. He is going to bear the weight of some kind of government. And then verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So, Jesus has to do with a nation. He is going to bear the weight of a government, and this government is going to be ever-increasing. And as it increases, peace will increase, and there will be no end to either. He will be on the throne of David over his kingdom. So this is one way that we need to absorb into the way we view and think and talk about Jesus. How do you usually think about Jesus? What terms does your mind automatically gravitate to in your thinking? The words we use shape the way we think, and the way we think shapes the way we act and shapes our whole life. And so we need to have a biblical vocabulary for how we think and talk about Jesus. So some of you may primarily think about Jesus in Christmas terms. You think of him as the, the son given to us, the child born to us, the baby in a manger. And so you primarily relate to Jesus and think about Jesus in cozy, nostalgic, sentimental ways. You may be one who primarily thinks of Jesus in terms of teaching and as a teacher. So you may relate to Jesus primarily in an academic way as something to be studied, someone to be studied. You might relate to him mainly in terms of his shepherding ministry. And so you primarily think of Jesus as your comforter and protector and provider. You might think of Jesus mainly in terms of the cross. And so you think of him as your savior, the one who died for your sins. You might think of him in terms of the resurrection. And so you think of him in uh, glory and power. All these things are true and good, and we, we should keep those in our view and understanding of Jesus, but we need to make sure that we also think of him in terms of king and governmental leadership, because that's one way the Bible talks about him. And when you think about him in terms of governmental leadership and his kingship, you'll relate to him as a ruler. You'll relate to him as one of his subjects. And that is a major theme throughout Scripture that isn't all that often emphasized in American Christianity. But it's important because it's not just an image. It's not just imagery that's nice. It is a practical reality. He truly is a king who truly is ruling and reigning over his people. And we are truly a part of a nation that he presides over. And it's hard to think of him this way. Uh, it's easier to think of our human politicians in terms of government leadership. President Trump is in the White House. He's in the Oval Office. You see him on TV. You, you hear his addresses and remarks. You read his tweets. And so it's easy to think of him as a president. It's harder to think of Jesus as our king because he's invisible. He's not here presently with us in that same physical way. But he is still here present with us. 
And he is establishing and upholding his kingdom, as verse 7 says. When you were saved, if you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, when you get saved, when you become a Christian, you are granted citizenship in his kingdom. That's one way to understand what happens when you become a Christian. You become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, with Jesus as your king. And you are joined with all those who live under King Jesus' rule and reign. You're joined with those who live according to Jesus' edicts and his commands and his way. You're part of that culture, that national culture of the kingdom of God now. And as you grow increasingly obedient to King Jesus, the kingdom increases. And as we invite more people to join us in the kingdom of God through forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they too can be granted citizenship in the kingdom. And so the kingdom grows numerically in that way, and the kingdom increases. And as our obedience as God's people works itself out in the way we relate to others and the way we go about our lives, the effects of Jesus' rule even bless and benefit those who are outside of the kingdom, but adjacent to it and beside it. And as the kingdom increases, peace increases. That's the second truth. So the first truth, Jesus is a governmental leader. The second truth, as Jesus' government increases, peace increases. True peace really only increases as King Jesus' rule increases. Verse 6 is a turning point in the passage. Verses 1 through 5 describes the coming day that Isaiah sees through the Holy Spirit as a prophet when people who walked in darkness walk in light and gloom and anguish are no more and um, God's people are joyful and glad like at harvest time and oppression is over with and violence is a thing of the past. And then verse 6 says, for or because, and what is the reason all this is going to come about? For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. It's because of Jesus's reign and rule, shouldering his government of this new nation that he is creating, that there will be an end to gloom and anguish, an end to oppression and violence, that there will be peace. Verse 7 makes this explicit. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. As Jesus' government increases, his rule worked out in the real lives of his people in this world. As it increases, peace increases right along with it. Where Jesus' government is minimal, where there are few people who trust and follow Jesus and live by his ways, peace is minimal as well. Peace rises or falls along with Jesus' governing rule and reign in your life and in the world. That word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. We've talked about it many times. Uh, it's the peace of completeness and wholeness. It's the peace of being made whole and complete in your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others, the people around you, the community, and the world. The more deeply you obey King Jesus, the more complete and whole you become in relationship with God, yourself, and other people. The more you live in rebellion against King Jesus, the less peace you're going to experience and the more fractured relationships, the more tension, the more strife you're going to experience 
in your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with other people. Jesus is called in verse 6 the Prince of Peace. He is perfectly whole and complete. His relationship with God the Father was one of absolute unity, perfect wholeness in relationship with God the Father. His relationship with himself was perfect. He was not conflicted within himself in any way or disjointed in the way that we tend to be. His relationship with people around him was perfect. He approached people with wholeness and completion. Because the Prince of Peace is whole and complete, he can make us whole and complete. That's what he does when he forgives our sins and gives us his innocence and makes us right with God, ourselves, and other people. Because we are now complete, because of Jesus' work in us, we can now spread that completeness and that wholeness to the people that we encounter. And that's a major part of being a Christian. When we see incompleteness, we do what we can to bring completeness. When we see brokenness, we do what we can to bring healing and wholeness. When we see enmity, we do what we can to bring harmony and reconciliation and understanding and love. If you watch the news and you have this feeling rise up within you that you want to see peace increase, this is where it comes from. Jesus's government increasing. Jesus's reign and rule growing deeper in you and wider in more people coming to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord and King. And really, there is no other source for true and lasting, real wholeness and completion aside from this. We extend Jesus's rule by obeying him more earnestly and then inviting others into the kingdom with us. This is how justice and righteousness come about in the world. That's the flow of thought here in verse 7. Of the increase of Jesus's, of, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is where it comes from. I want to read a quote from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. He says, we weave ourselves into the broken fabric of society, reweaving shalom by self-sacrificially threading, lacing, and pressing our time, goods, power, and resources into the needs of others. That is the Christian life as spreaders of Jesus's government and Jesus's shalom, Jesus's peace. We work that out deep into our own lives and then deep into others. So the two truths, Jesus is a governmental leader. He is the ultimate governmental leader. Not our, our governor, Roy Cooper, for us in North Carolina. Not our president, President Donald Trump. Uh, not whoever's going to win the next presidential election in 2020. We vote the best we can as citizens of America. We pray for our leaders and hope the very best for them. We support them and submit to them in every way that we can based on Romans 13. And we hold them accountable as, as good citizens in this country. But our ultimate hope is not in any of them. Our ultimate hope is in our ultimate governmental leader, King Jesus, who is king of the kingdom that will last and increase forever, though every earthly kingdom will eventually fade. 
the kingdom of God will not. I would love to see, based on this truth, we Christians talk more about King Jesus than we do politicians. I would love to see on social media much more passion and opinion and thoughtfulness about the kingdom of God and Jesus's authority than our secular governmental leaders. The second truth, as Jesus's government increases, peace increases. I would love for every unsettling headline that we read in the news to prompt deeper obedience and allegiance to King Jesus. That's the right response. The most radical form of activism we could take in our fractured world right now would be to read King Jesus's word and genuinely obey it and submit to it. If you don't know where to begin, I want to suggest the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 is where it starts. And it's a, a beautiful laying out of the kingdom ethic and the kingdom culture. If you want to live as a citizen of the kingdom, that's a great place to start. Meditate on the Sermon on the Mount. Let the Holy Spirit work those virtues into reality in your life. If you will do that, you will find yourself increasingly dedicated to pursuing humility and meekness and righteousness and purity and charity. You'll find yourself increasingly devoted to being merciful to people, to being a peacemaker, to uh, doing good works, as many good works as you can every day, to being trustworthy in how you talk. Uh, you'll find yourself eager to get rid of anger within yourself, lust. Uh, you'll find yourself uh, wanting to pursue marriage according to God's terms and to forsake divorce culture. Uh, you'll find yourself wanting to get rid of judgmentalism within yourself. Uh, anger, lust, divorce, all these things will, will fade away. You'll find yourself building your life on the rock and living by the golden rule which is in the Sermon on the Mount. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. However you go about it, wherever you begin, wherever you are in your progress in this right now, maybe you're not a Christian and you need to confess your sins and repent of those and uh, ask King Jesus for forgiveness and commit your life to following him and living as a citizen of his kingdom. Or maybe you're a Christian that just needs to refocus your life on living as a citizen of the kingdom, let us remember that Jesus is our governmental leader and renew our allegiance to him because as his government increases, peace increases with it. And I'll close the sermon with 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.